0: One time, there was a woman who came into a prayer meeting. There was a room full of people there. And at some point, there was a time for sharing and talking. And she stood up and looking a little, a little frazzled, a little discouraged. She said something like this, I'm overwhelmed in my life. began to relate some challenges and work and family and whatnot. Talked about the pressures that she was under. And then she added toward the end something interesting. She said, I wonder sometimes if the problem is that I really lack a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I need prayer and I need help. Now when somebody comes into a prayer meeting and with that kind of honesty, it tends to change the atmosphere of the prayer meeting very quickly. And I want you to think this morning with me just for a moment about the ancient congregation of believers who received the letter to the Hebrews. I think if some members of that congregation would have been honest, like our prayer meeting lady, they might have said something exactly like that. The recipients of the letter of Hebrews were under pressure, and they were weakening. We don't know everything about them, but we can surmise a few things. They were a local congregation, probably not a large congregation, the kind of congregation that if you drop out, you will be missed. They were of a Jewish background. They knew all the things of the Old Testament and had practiced all of that at one time. They may well have been in Rome. There is a mention of Italy in the letter. The most ancient copy of the letter of Hebrews to emerge in church history was found in the city of Rome. The author appeared to know them very well. He knew that they had been under pressure. And he knew that they had been weakening. Look what he said to them in chapter 10. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. So they had endured uh, some sufferings in this local congregation, discrimination, reproach. Some had been in prison. Some had experienced the confiscation of their property. There were several outbreaks of persecution in the Roman Empire in the first century. We know that. And these Christians were, I guess, at some point, targets of that and under pressure. And so these Hebrew Christians were under pressure from a hostile world. Now chapter 12, verse 4, adds in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Thankfully, there had been no martyrdom, but we see that ominous word, yet, yet, You have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed. So the pressure was ongoing. And this led to a kind of battle fatigue, discouragement, spiritual decline, which is made clear throughout the whole book. Look at some of the language that the author uses concerning this local congregation. He warned them about being neglectful, about having unbelieving hearts, about being dull of hearing, even falling away, neglecting to meet together. And then, harsher yet, being guilty of trampling underfoot the Son of God, being guilty of profaning the blood of Christ, being guilty of refusing him who speaks It's a bit of a shock to the system to hear these words spoken to a local congregation of believers, but the pressure had taken its toll, and some of them were weakening. Some in their congregation appeared to be turning their backs on the Lord Jesus under the pressure. In fact, the book explains that some were tempted to return to the safe haven of Judaism to practice again the Jewish faith. Apparently, in that time and place, the Jews were not up for persecution, but the Christians were under the pressure of some kind of persecution. And being Jews and knowing that way so well, being familiar with the Old Testament, after all, it's the Old Testament, it's Abraham, it's Moses, it's the temple, it's the priests, it's the offerings, it's the sacrifices, it's the feast days. Why not go back? After all that all came from God, didn't it? Much safer than being a Christian. There's an old saying that says sometimes in in this world it is easier to die as a martyr than to live as a Christian. And certainly for these Hebrew believers it seemed like it might be easier just to go back. What do we do when the pressure's on? How does a believer live under the pressure of an unbelieving world, the pressure of satanic deceit, the pressure of hatred and rejection and reproach, the confiscation of property? What do we do when we're put on the spot in our workplace, our schools, our neighborhoods, our towns, when someone wants to cancel us or silence us? We see so much of this going on these days. What do we do when we feel ourselves weakening under this? We are learning again in these days that it can be at times very dangerous to be a Christian in this world. A world ruled, the Bible says, by the prince of the power of the age. A world, according to 1 John chapter 5, that is under the sway of the evil one. There is pressure to varying degrees and varying times of believers. In this world, there always has been, there always will be. Shall we turn back from Christ and find an easier way? These Hebrew Christians were tempted to do so. Well, the writer of the letter of Hebrews says that this we must not do. Turn within your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse, 6, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, I suppose some of you have a device you can use, but you should have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you should get one. If you can't afford a Bible, you should get a job (laughs) and buy one. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. I was preaching or teaching through the book of Hebrews in Hungary earlier this spring. And I was privileged to spend about six weeks preparing for that. And as I did, there were two verses that really jumped out at me in the text of Hebrews. And I thought to myself, man, if we could get these two verses, we could really live the Christian life in these days. And so I want to give you those two verses, these two passages, over this week and next week when I'm with you again And this morning, we want to look to the first of these two passages that really struck me. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But one who in every respect has been tempted as are we, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So there are a couple of exhortations that we want to pick up on here in this passage. Uh, Number one, when the pressure is on, we want to cling to Jesus, verses 14 and 15. Number two, when the pressure is on, we want to cry out to Jesus. Verse 16, the next week we'll move on to chapter 12, should be chapter 12 there. When the pressure is on, we will consecrate ourselves to the Lord Jesus. And then in this first point here this morning, we're going to have an exhortation, first of two exhortations. And then an explanation for that exhortation. So, when the pressure is on, number one, first exhortation, we cling to Jesus. He says, let us hold fast our confession. When the pressure is on, we hold fast to our confession of the Lord Jesus. Now, the confession, of course, is our personal and public acknowledgement of following the Lord Jesus Christ. When we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior, and are born again of the Spirit, born into God's family, we begin to take on a new identity, we're baptized into that identity, we begin to align ourselves with the body of Christ, we begin to walk as a Christian in this world. These saints of the ancient congregation of Hebrews had done all of this. They had confessed the Lord Jesus for some time. And so the exhortation is, when the pressure comes, you must keep on with this. Cling to him. Over in chapter 10, verse 23, the same exhortation is repeated, but he adds that you are to hold fast your confession without wavering, without bending the knee to any threat or any power of this world. There is to be no buckling to worldly or satanic deceit and evil. The Lord is worthy of our confession. It's a good word for it today as We see in our world so many intimidators. They seem to be growing more threatening toward us. And here we are exhorted to hold to a firm profession of Jesus Christ in this world. We cling to him. Notice the word hold fast. This is used in the Bible of those who are taken into custody and strapped with shackles. It's what, the kind of a language I use when I throw something in my pickup and I strap it down and I pronounce those grand and final words. That's not going anywhere. That's <laughs> what we say, right? We're not going anywhere. We're going to hold fast our confession. We're going to cling to Jesus. Over the summer, I've been reading a series of books about the Second World War. The author is a history teacher in New York State. And over time, uh, years ago, he began to interview all of the old World War II veterans that were passing from the scene. And he got interview after interview after interview, and he began to organize these. And there's eight volumes of these books, which tells the story of the various theaters and activities of World War II, told through the eyes of the common soldier and his recollection. And in the book on the Pacific Theater, he tells the story of all of those islands that the U.S. had to take back in those days, Guam and Saipan, Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal, Okinawa, as the Japanese had months and years to dig in there, and they had fortresses built into the hills, and they had tunnels, and they had nests. And there was American GI on the island of Saipan who told the story of, of uh, taking this hill and there was a de- dead Japanese machine gunner in his nest and he had been chained by his superior officers to his heavy gun so that he could not retreat. Now God isn't cruel, he doesn't chain us to every, anything. But our commander-in-chief does say, when the pressure comes, there's to be no retreat. Hold fast your confession. Don't weaken. No turning back. The Puritan John Owen, commenting on this very passage, said, This word of exhortation plainly intimates to lay hold of a thing and to retain it with all our might. As if it were ready to, every moment, to be taken from us with a violent and strong hand. You don't let it go. We are to hold it with watchfulness, diligence, constancy, and our utmost endeavor in all. And this duty is to the contrary of the sins of apostasy or a total desertion of our profession, and of a declension or going back gradually from our diligence and progress. So the the word is not uncertain here. The exhortation is not unclear. When worldly and satanic pressure comes, we are to hold fast to our confession of the Lord Jesus in this world. We are to cling to him. It is the thing that is to mark us, especially when the pressure comes, because that's when it really counts, when the world is against us, when the devil is throwing darts. So that's the exhortation. It's very, very clear. Now, what is the explanation? Why should we do this? And the answer to that question comes up, it really begins in chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to take a look there. Chapter 3, verse 1, we are introduced to a theme of the book of Hebrews, a theme that the Lord Jesus is our great high priest. Therefore, holy brothers, You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, think about Jesus, ponder Jesus, dwell upon Jesus, meditate upon Jesus, who is the apostle, the sent one, and the high priest of our confession. Now, we remember that there was a high priest of Old Testament days. You remember that whole scene where they had a thing called the tabernacle, later the temple, And in that tabernacle building there were two parts. It was all called the holy place. And then partway through it was a veil which was called the most holy place. And the job of the great high priest was to be a divinely appointed intermediary who went into this tabernacle. And once a year he would take the blood of the animal sacrifice and he would go through into that most holy place behind the veil where no one else could go. And he would take the blood of the sacrifice and there in there would be the mercy seat. And God said upon that mercy seat I will meet with the sins of man. And and the high priest would sprinkle his blood, the blood of the animal sacrifice, upon that mercy seat and there God promised to meet the people in forgiveness. Later on, in the book of Hebrews, the author explains that Jesus was a high priest, vastly superior to this Old Testament high priest and Old Testament ritual system. He did not go into a structure made by human hands. He did not take the blood of animals. He did not have to go year after year. He did not have to make atonement for himself like the Old Testament high priest did, but rather he took his own blood into the very presence of God, once for all, into the heavenly throne room, to bring a complete and once for all payment for our sins, which was the place where God met us in forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, rendering that Old Testament system obsolete which was only shadows and symbols of the greater thing, which was to come. And so in the book of Hebrews, we have this explanation of the Lord Jesus as a new and greater high priest, one, the only one who can make sufficient atonement for the believer, a transcendent figure, he alone worthy to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful people. And so to these Hebrews, you see, who understood all of this. What the author is saying to them, how can you understand the Lord Jesus and then turn back from him because of the pressure of this world? How could you do such a thing? So, we have to learn about the Lord Jesus as our high priest. I think there are four things here. Number one, he is a great high priest. The word is mega. We all know what that means. He was greater than Aaron The first priest, greater than the line of high priests down through the ages with all of their sacred vestments and august importance in that Old Testament elaborate ritualistic system. He was greater than all that. Secondly, he was a divine high priest. Notice the text in verse 14 says, Jesus, what? The Son of God. He was not a man like the Old Testament high priest. Not only a man. He was not like unto other men, but he was the only begotten Son of God, the God-man, who became a man so that he could bring to us God's sufficient forgiveness. Thirdly, he was a heavenly high priest. Notice that he passed through the heavens. You know, the Apostle Paul taught about the three heavens, the earth's atmosphere, uh, the greater outer space, And then that third heaven, which we cannot see, it's as if there is a veil over that third heaven, the very dwelling place of God in the throne room of heaven. But just as the Old Testament high priest went behind that veil, so the Lord Jesus pierced through that heavenly veil. And there he brought his own blood into the throne room of God, something that no earthly high priest could ever do a great high priest a divine high priest a heavenly high priest fourthly a sympathetic high priest i don't think the hebrews were expecting this one but as a double negative here he was not unable not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses so a double negative to really emphasize the positive he is readily able to have sympathy toward us as we struggle against this world. He wasn't detached from the human experience, was he? Because he came into this world and he lived in this world. He experienced bodily weakness and fatigue and stress of mind. And not only that, but the pressure of the world and all the enticements of power and envy and revenge and hatred. We know from the beginning of the Lord Jesus, public ministry, the devil threw everything he had at him. He faced the currencies of this evil world, along with the stress and fatigue of everything a human being faced. He experienced temptation of the body, attacks of the devil, the pressure of the world, and yet he was without sin. He remained an unblemished lamb for us, Literally it says he has been tested according to all, according to the same. In the same way that we are tested in all the manner and means of trouble we face in this world. So he knows what we are facing as we walk through this world. He knows our weak points, our stumbling, our failures, our sins. Yet in his love, he yet died for us and saves us and keeps us. What a great high priest we have, a a great high priest, a divine high priest, a heavenly high priest who pierced the veil of the heavens to bring his atoning blood before the face of God for us. A sympathetic high priest. How can we turn from such a one as this if we truly know him? This is what the writer is saying to these Hebrews. We must not turn back, but we must cling to him. Now, I follow sports, you know. I probably shouldn't. I think I—I hate to think of all the time I wasted following sports, especially when my teams are bad. It's painful. But I've been following the controversies in Major League Baseball here over the summer. You know, the, the Major League Baseball embraced all of these so-called pride events that we've seen so much of, uh, the attacks on the faith, sometimes with even public obscenity, bringing in groups that even glorified the Lord, or excuse me, uh, profaned the Lord the Major League Baseball players have a rather high profile, and these teens wanted them to speak for the pride events, to turn up for the pride events, to wear the hats and the patches and the symbols and the whatnot. There was a pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays who spoke out against this on social media as a Christian. He was called in, obviously threatened, then forced to come out and apologize say he was wrong they did everything to this guy but put a dunce cap on him they humiliated him and that didn't do any good anyways because they shortly thereafter released him fired him kicked him off the team there were some brave christian players this fellow from the dodgers uh blake training he put out a statement about this when the dodgers were doing something Oops, it's kind of cut off there. I, I understand that playing baseball is a privilege and not a right. My convictions in Jesus Christ will always come first. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe the Word of God is true. In Galatians 6 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. What a man reaps, he will sow. This, he goes on to say, the stuff they were doing, openly mocks Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of my faith, and I want to make clear that I do not agree with or support the decision of the Dodgers, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Holding our confession when the pressure is on, who knows what they'll do to this guy, who knows how this will affect his career. But I think if a simple ball player can stand and hold his confession under the heat of a satanically driven effort and a wicked world, I think we can too. I mean, baseball players are not known to be geniuses or exceptional people, except they can throw a ball and run fast, you know. So what we are saying, the Lord Jesus is worthy of our profession, worthy of clinging to him in the midst of this world. Why? He's a great high priest. Who else is like him? Who else can we go to? Who else carried his blood before the face of God for sinners such as us? Who else sympathizes with us as we walk through this world? When the pressure is on, then we hold fast our confession. We cling to the Lord Jesus. That's the first exhortation. Now there's a second exhortation. That we cry out to Jesus... When the pressure is on, as we hold fast to him, we also cry out to him. So the exhortation here in verse 16 is with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. And we're going to see here an exhortation, then a a result of that exhortation. So here we have an exhortation to come to the throne of grace with boldness and obvious call to pray through the pressures of life. We pray in the temptations. We pray before the temptations. We pray after the temptations. Even if we falter, we come back to him. We cry out for help all along the way. We notice here that the throne of God is called a throne of grace. This is used only here in all of the Bible. There is kind of of a doctrine of the throne of God in the Bible. We could call it thronology. That's my new word for it. And we see a lot about the throne of God in the Bible. We see that it's a throne, of course, of God's power and dominion. And in Revelation 20, we see it as the great white throne judgment. It's a throne of judgment there as God judges all the unbelievers of every age. We see here, however, that it is called a throne of grace with regard to his children. Why? Because Jesus is now sitting on that very throne. Yes, it is still a throne of sovereign power and government and providence, and glory, and judgment. But now we see also that the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus has gone there to sit at the right hand of that power and that throne. Jesus now shares that throne with God. We see this depicted in Revelation chapter 4 as the ascended Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, still bearing the marks of his suffering there at the right hand of God in that very throne room of heaven, there with all the myriad of angels and the myriad of redeemed worshipers there in heaven. There is the Lord Jesus, not appearing as one who is untainted by his time on earth, but there with the marks of his own suffering, still standing there to teach us, that this is the redeemer who came for us, and now he, that one, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the sin bearer, bearing the marks of his atonement for us. And so that changes our conception of this throne. We will go there one day. We will be in that throne room. We belong to that throne room, and now it is our throne of grace. And as the pressure is on in this world, we are invited to go there with boldness. It's not just have a little bit of grace there, it is altogether a throne of grace for us. It's no longer a throne of judgment. No matter what problem or pressure, temptation, failure, we come there boldly. The word boldly is most often used in the New Testament of speaking freely. This is why I use the concept of crying out, to go there and pour out the depth of our trouble, our pressures, our temptations, our failures, our weakenings. We pour this out. We cry out to him. It's a throne of grace. The book of Romans says that the law was given that every mouth may be silenced as guilty before God But the great high priest was given that every mouth may be opened unto him in gracious communion, in prayer. In persecution, in affliction, in trouble, in testing, in loss, in need, in duty, in challenge. By his blood, we are confident to enter this place and to pray And find our sympathetic high priest. And there, notice we receive two things. Number one, we receive mercy. Mercy is clemency. It is loving forgiveness. It is forgiving love. The Bible says that God is rich in mercy. The Bible says that we, his people, are vessels of his mercy. He lives to pour out his mercy upon us. There's a forgiving spirit there. There's a kind spirit there. There's a sympathetic spirit there. And there we go again and again in our distresses, our problems, our pressures, and even our weakening and our failures. And then we also find grace there. We find divine favor, goodwill. And the Lord has a stated propensity to relieve our distresses in this world. Boy, isn't it a relief! When someone pities us in our distress, you know, in the last five years, I've gone into the hospital four times to get operated on, with a fifth time coming up this October. So I ask myself the question: What in the world is the matter with me? I guess the Lord figures I need some uh, some tenderizing. And I think he also thinks I need some new spare parts. I got spare parts of me from Napa, Home Depot, you name it, I got it. And one of the great takeaways from these experiences is how much these medical people have helped me. Um, Not just physically through the surgery, that's obvious, but also I've been greatly blessed from the primary caregivers, especially the nurses. One time after surgery, I was violently ill the next day from some medicine they were giving me. And I tell you, it wasn't a pretty picture in that room. And this nurse was coming into my room and checking on me and calling doctors and coming back. And finally, at one point, I said to her, I hate to keep bothering you. But that sweet nurse says, oh, no, I'm not leaving your side till you start feeling better. Another time, I was on the verge of passing out during a procedure that wasn't really a lot of fun and that nurse she slapped that bed down she had a cold compress on my forehead in about two seconds she saved me in a microsecond she seemed to understand what i was experiencing and what i needed another older nurse came in one day and i had just had spinal surgery which was very difficult very painful she said well it's time for you to take your first walk And I told her, I don't think I can do it. I'm too weak. And she said, oh, you can do it. I'm going to be with you. I've got my safety strap here, and I'm going to be taking every step with you. I've done this with many, many people before you, and you can do this. And she seemed to understand what I needed in that hour. And all that came without judgment, without condescension. And I was thinking, who are these people? You know, if it was me, I would say, you know, come on, get over it, let's go. (laughs) How much more the Lord Jesus, our kind and sympathetic high priest who walked himself through this world, who understands it, who is tested at every point, as are we, knows our need for mercy, for loving forgiveness, for clemency, who knows our need, For grace, for help, because of all of our challenges, and so, yes, we cry out to Him under the pressures. And then, finally, here in verse sixteen, there's a result, a promise, and the result of this is literally the result of this praying is literally going to be well-timed help. Our prayers and pleas. And cries will bring well-timed help. The term for help here is used of a ship in danger of sinking. And help comes and rescues it. This word help is used in the story of the Canaanite woman who fell at the feet of Jesus and just spoke three words, Lord, help me. And he did. It's used of the father of the demonized man in Mark chapter 9, when he said, Lord, help my unbelief. And who has not had to pray a prayer like that at one time or another? A cry for that well timed help. They say, God is never in a hurry, but he's always on time. Because of his sympathy, because he is able to understand how to help us, these prayers will bring in this pressurized world well timed help again and again. And so, what is the writer saying here? In the seasons of pressure in this world, as we endeavor to hold fast our confession, clinging to the Lord Jesus, we go to this place of prayer, the throne room of grace, where we belong because of the blood of Jesus, and there we pour out our pleadings So that our favorably inclined great high priest, the Lord Jesus, may grant us help right and in the way that we need it. Sometimes I think if I could just get into the Lord's presence and just be able to pour out my heart irrespective of how and when he answers me. If I could just get there and pour out what I am facing, I could carry on trusting that he will meet my need at the appointed season. My brothers, can we learn to pray like this? Brethren, can we learn to pray like this? Luther said here that the Lord shows us how he longs to pour oil into the wounds that the world inflicts upon us. The Lord longs to pour oil into the wounds the world inflicts upon us. Thus in the pressure of this world two exhortations, we cling to him and we cry out to him. In the fall of 1857, a Sunday school worker in New York City conceived of a noonday prayer meeting. He saw a nation in economic distress, he saw a church in decline. The days seemed challenging, there was pressure. And so this man, Jeremiah Lamphere, he printed a handbill and he proceeded to pass it out, inviting people to pray at noontime on a Wednesday. He passed out this handbill all over lower Manhattan in New York City. That act, by the grace of God, was what ignited the greatest revival in American history, the layman's prayer revival of 1858. Didn't start with preaching. Didn't start with organizing. It started with this little handbill inviting people to pray on a Wednesday at noon and somehow in a season of national distress and economic hardship people took it in and it led to massive prayer meetings across the city of New York and by 1858 one out of every 8 people in New York City was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ and it led to 40 years of expansion in every American denomination 40 years of expansion This very church was founded in the wake of this great revival as there was a Mennonite bishop who planted 12 rural churches all across the countryside here in central Illinois in 1860 through 1890. Can you imagine today planting 12 rural churches in the middle of the cornfields and building buildings and putting pastors in there and filling them up? Can you imagine such a thing? How the Lord was really working in those days? Here's a facsimile of the original handbill, and here's what the first paragraph says. How often should I pray? As often as the language of prayer is in my heart, as often as I see my need of help, as often as I feel the power of temptation, as often as I am made sensible of any spiritual declension or feel the aggression of a worldly and earthly spirit, there is great help at this throne of grace. Are we using it? Are we going there? This is our hope, this is our confidence that the Lord will help us with mercy and grace in these days, personally, corporately, in every magnificent way that he has always answered the prayers of his people. We're going to be in that throne room one day. We belong at that throne by the blood of Jesus. Let us not fail to go there again and again and again, pleading under the pressures of a satanically governed world. Brethren, of the Lord's great help, I believe we can withstand in these days. Not weakening under the pressure. Holding fast our confession. And perhaps God will again ignite his church with great provision. Great blessing from on high as we pray. But first, we hold that confession. We cling to the Lord Jesus. And then we go to him. We cry out to him for the help that we need in mercy and grace and we go to him because there was no one like him there is no other great high priest like him there is nowhere else to go so let us go there and see what it is that God will do for us in these days shall we pray we thank you our father for the blood of jesus which has made provision for us for the full atonement of our sins by our great high priest. And therefore, Lord, we cling to him in all things. We come to you in prayer this morning, Lord, for all the needs that are here assembled. You know your people so well. You were tested just like they are tested. And Lord, may their prayer come up to you and may you hear an answer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to observe communion together this morning. I want us to meditate for a moment uh, on the Lord Jesus and his work for us, turning again to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Verse 10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. Chapter 10, verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Down in chapter 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So we reflect this morning on these elements, the bread symbolizing the broken body of the Lord Jesus, the cup symbolizing his shed blood. We reflect that he gave all once to achieve our perfection, the forgiveness of sins, And he remembers those sins no more. So we're here again to renew the grace of God in our lives. All of our sins are forgiven. Our worst ones. The ones we don't even like to think about. The ones we struggle against year by year and day by day. And we receive anew the assurance of the grace of forgiveness in our lives through the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you are welcome to this table. You don't earn your way here. It is a table of grace. By faith, we confess him, and by faith, we come to this table. Our ushers will pass the elements. We'll take the bread first. We'll pray over the bread, and then uh, we shall hold on to it and then partake together at the end if we can.